Would you join me in opening up our Bibles to 1 John chapter 5? If you're with us this morning and want to use the Blue Pew Bible, you can find that on page 1023. Uh, But now that we are officially in December, I just want to, before we dig into the passage, um, share three quick things as we approach year end. Um, Number one is that one of the bright spots for us as a church uh, in a year defined by disruption and difficulty and change is the unchanging faithfulness of our church as a whole in our giving and generosity. Uh, The work of the local church, we know, depends on the provision of its people to sow into the vision, to make disciples. As we fix our eyes on Christ, we see and know that his kingdom is the only kingdom that we can invest in that will bear fruit for all of eternity. And by God's grace, and it really is humbling to even be able to say this in December, that our overall giving in 2020 is higher than it was in 2019. And that is a testimony to a lot of things, but primarily to just God's provision and grace in your lives And then in turn, your stewardship of those funds and generosity towards the work of Grace Church. And so uh, my encouragement is to, with now a few weeks left, to continue on that track and so that we can finish strong. Uh, Because while we've been able to keep our expenses below budget in 2020, uh, we would still love to hit and even surpass our giving budget for the year. Um, And to that end... You might have seen an email that we sent out this past week uh, that an anonymous donor from Grace, um, at least anonymous to me, um, has put out a $20,000 matching gift from now until year end um, for our long-term maintenance and improvement fund. Uh, Many of you are aware that covers all the projects that are done at our facilities here at Grace. And so if you are willing to contribute to that matching gift over and above your regular giving, Every dollar you give will be doubled uh, due to this matching donor, um, where if you uh, designate LTMI on a memo of a check, or if you give via push pay, uh, if you're here, room, you can see on the screen, uh, there, there's a pull-down menu in push pay that you can designate for long-term uh, maintenance and improvement. Um, and so, again, generosity has just been an unbelievable source of encouragement to myself, to the staff to the elders here this year, and so let me encourage us to finish strong and see what God does with it. That's number one. Number two is this Tuesday night, we have a missions night on Zoom uh, from 7.30 to 9 p.m. this Tuesday, and five of our missions partners that literally serve across the world will be with us live for a panel discussion um, about how COVID has impacted their ministry uh, in their parts of the world, um, some unexpected blessings that has come about because of um, the coronavirus, um, and then there'll be a time for open Q&A for anybody who attends that. So there's no registration required for that. An email will go out on Tuesday with the Zoom link, um, and we just want as many people to be able to tune in for that. It's 7.30 to 9 p.m., and, uh, you know, Zoom is one of those 2020 words, right? Like, nobody knew Zoom last year. Now everyone knows Zoom, for better or worse, but one benefit we have really come to realize is uh, a struggle we always have at Grace is how do we connect our missions and our missionaries to our people when they're serving abroad? And and this gives us this opportunity with a click to be face-to-face with our missionaries, to hear from them, hear how we can pray for them, um, and it's just, I think, um, 
in a church that is so committed to missions over its 75-year history, the fact that this is the first time that we're doing a virtual panel and can do that pretty simply uh, with our partners is just amazing, and we're excited about it. So Tuesday night, 7.30, hope you can tune in for that. If you do not get our emails at Grace Church, um, please indicate on your connection card in the pew, or if you're uh, live streaming online, there should be in the um, digital chat and a form that you can fill out to provide that for us, and Mary will uh, get you on the list so you can get that link. All right, number three, the plan for Christmas Eve. A lot of back and forth on this, uh, but here is where we landed as of now uh, and that we we're going to move forward with. On Wednesday, December 23rd, Christmas Eve Eve, at 6 p.m., we're going to do an outdoor service on the front lawn. Uh, you know, with the amount that lawn has been a blessing to us in 2020, uh, we felt it was only fitting if towards the end of the year, especially around Christmas, that we have an opportunity to gather um, in that way and have a short outdoor service, um, especially for those who I know are, are at home, have not been able to join in person, who do not feel comfortable with that yet. Uh, hopefully this would be a blessing for you as well. We will sing Christmas songs together. There will be a short kids message from Megan. There will be a brief Devo given by me. Um, registration not required for this service at 6 p.m. on December 23rd. Uh, so bundle up. Uh, unless it's really bad weather or bitter cold, we'll be out there and want to gather in that way. And then Christmas Eve, Thursday, December 24th, uh, we will do our two indoor services at 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. Um, registration will be required for that, and as you know, it is capped for that. Um, we can have uh, 25% of this room is 100 people, so that is the most that we can have here for each service. Um, that service will be live streamed as well. But the email to register for the Christmas Eve service will be sent today. It will be going out this afternoon to register. Um, so uh, you guys have been totally gracious with us, with all the registration we're making you guys do, and you feel like you're jumping through all these hoops to, that we just need to do to make things happen in this strange and unique year. Uh, but So this afternoon, registration for Christmas will, Eve will go out, and then tomorrow morning, our normal Monday email where you register for next Sunday service will go out. So want that to put, it, uh, put that on your radar as well. So, all right, deep breath, segue. We have now made it, by God's grace, to the final passage in our series in 1 John. And I don't know about you, but this whole letter has felt like, to me, a loving grandfather exhorting his grandchildren as he nears the end of his life. Uh, that this wisdom of this Apostle Elder John has come um, with the combination of conviction and assurance. That's what 1 John has felt for me, right? That, that John does in his letter what I think God's Word always intends to do. It diagnoses, and then it treats. It cuts you, but then it heals you. It convicts us of sin, but then assures us of our forgiveness and security in Christ. Right? Like, I, I kind of liken it to a good workout, right? After you do a good physical workout, your body is beat up, but you kind of feel good about it, don't you? Like, like it's the good kind of sore. Um, and, like, you, you needed it. And so you don't feel great, but you know you feel good that you don't feel great. That's how I feel like when I read through the book of First John, let alone preach through it. And I think I say this at the end of every book that we preach through when I get to the final passage, but I have always been fascinated at how biblical authors end their writing. 
What do they choose for their final words? Final words in life are in many ways the most important words because they get remembered the most. They often get remembered first, whatever what was said last. So if you were an aspiring writer, if you ever were at a time where you wanted to do some writing, kind of a writing 101 for aspiring writers was finish strong, right? Your last line, end with a punch. Your favorite maybe columnists or writers online, like they always put a lot of time into that final line. Don't slack. Don't be vague on final words. And as we'll see, John is known, and the ending of 1 John is one of the most famous endings in the Bible. Here's a sneak peek at the last line. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. By the end of the sermon, I hope you will see that is the perfect ending. So we're going to be walking through verses 13 to 21, but we will get things started with just verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Question, what what are the foundational things God wants you to know? If you are a believer, a professing believer, what are the foundational things, according to John, that God wants you to know? If you're raising children or grandchildren in the truth of the Lord, what are the foundational things you want them to know about their Christian life? John's going to give us five things, five things in this passage that you need to know as a Christian. Before you live your life as a Christian, here's what you need to know as a Christian. Number one, John wants you to know that we have eternal life. This, verse 13, I think is the most complete and clear line that reveals why John sat down to write this letter in the first place. Why did he take the time to write a letter, mail it, and send it to a series of churches in Asia Minor? He says, I write these things. What are these things? Broadly speaking, it's everything that has been written up to this point. So he signals here, he is wrapping up the letter. He is starting the end. You know, it's like when a preacher says, finally, and then he has 10 minutes still left in his sermon, right? Like, isn't that the worst? Like, um, he says, I write these things, and he's still got a good amount he needs to unpack, but he's signaling to you, we're wrapping up here. I'm about to finish. More narrowly speaking, these things refer to the three major themes that John has given in his letter over and over again, the three tests that serve as evidence of true Christian faith, the test of right belief, the test of obedience, and the test of love. Those things are these things. So I write these things to those who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. On the final week of our series in 1 John, that John wants you to know about your Christian life, starting with church. Did you know that you could know you have eternal life. Did you know that you can know? If you were to list out all the things in your life that you would love to know in this world, I think that knowing your eternal state is secure would have to be at the top of that list. Think about this with me. Um, We may think it'd be nice to know how long we're going to live. Wouldn't it be nice to know that? 
but we don't. It would be nice to know if we would be financially secure for the rest of our lives, but we don't. It would certainly be nice to know that our closest loved ones would never hurt us or that we would never hurt them, but we don't know. And yet, according to John, as believers, by God's grace to us and God's spirit indwelling in us, we can know that which surpasses everything else on whatever list you have, that you have eternal life. The assurance of the Christian life is not a I think so kind of faith. It's not even a I hope so kind of faith. It's I know so faith. The fact that John spends so much energy talking about assurance in this letter to these churches, the reason he does it exposes the fact that assurance is so difficult for people to grasp. It's so difficult for Christians to have that you can know that you know Jesus. At the end of John's gospel, he wrote something similar. He wrote in John chapter 20, I write these things. These things are written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And now at the end of 1 John, he writes, these things are written so that you may know that you have eternal life. So John's gospel is written so that you can know Jesus. And now his epistle is written so that you can know that you know Jesus. Assurance of salvation is ultimately the Spirit's work. God saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is God's work. But assurance is our duty. We don't save ourselves, but we are called to fix our eyes on Christ and live in the truth that we are who he says we are. That's our job. Because listen to me, the enemy of your life loves a Christian who is not assured of their salvation. Because it keeps their eyes on themselves and not on God. He loves when our eyes are constantly staring down, and we're staring down. We're looking at our performance, and we're looking at our sin, and we're looking at our weaknesses, where we become obsessed with ourselves. And when our eyes are down, we're not looking to God. We're not looking to others as God calls us to do. And not only do we not have assurance, but we stunt our own growth, we stunt our own maturity, we stunt our impact in this world for his glory. You know, I think I mentioned this um, word picture earlier in the series, but a, a Christian without assurance, a Christian living the Christian life without assurance is like driving on the highway with your emergency brake on. Like, you'll get where you need to go. You'll be moving in the right direction, but even with the pedal to the metal, you're barely moving. Turn the e-brake off. Take your eyes off yourself. Look to Christ. Because John wants those who believe to have assurance in him, because almost ironically, the more secure we know we are, the less we think about ourselves, the less we make it about ourselves. And we are free. You are free to fix your eyes on God and where he directs them. Number one, what does John want you to know about the Christian life that you can have eternal life? Let's keep going. Let's read verses 14 and 15. 
And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Number two, John wants us to know that we can be confident in prayer. John now provides this kind of practical, everyday application of true assurance in Christ, that when you have that confidence, you are prone to pray more and not less. Praying from acceptance as opposed to praying for acceptance. Prayer for too many Christians seems like this burden that we carry on our back that we have to do in order to keep God happy in order to stay in his good graces, in order to get good things to happen to us, we have to pray. And let me tell you, from personal experience, that is a terrible motivation for prayer. Guilt-driven prayer, it lacks confidence. But grace-driven prayer fuels confidence in the God we are approaching. I guarantee you, you will not have a strong prayer life without assurance of who you are in him. That is true personally, but that's also true for us corporately as a church. Let's remember, John is writing to a church. They are hearing this together. Oftentimes, we individualize prayer too much. Certainly, we are to have an individual prayer life, one that has vitality to it, but we often limit the discussion on prayer just to you and your prayer life, as opposed to us and our prayer life as a church. And, 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 and us doing and knowing who we are as his body in Grace Church and knowing what we are called to do. If you were to go through the book of Acts and you were to highlight all the times prayer is listed, very rarely, if ever, do you see an individual praying. It's always the church praying together. Here's a small example of what the church prayed for in Acts. They, prayer, they prayed for wisdom and choosing leaders within the church. They prayed for courage through persecution. They prayed for signs and wonders. They prayed for the gospel to bear fruit in their cities. They prayed for individuals that were in prison. They prayed for conversions. They they prayed for the elders who shepherded among them in their churches. They prayed in worship for wisdom of future plans. All these things and more John is saying we can have confidence in our prayers. And we know that prayer is not only asking God for things, but it very much includes asking God for things. That is how God designed it, to work in and through the prayers of imperfect people to bring about his perfect purposes. So when John says in those verses that we know that he hears us and we know that we have what we asked of him, He's not saying that Christians are going to get everything you ask for. He's not propping God up as a, some kind of genie. If you just ask the right way, he'll say yes. He's not some grand Santa Claus that you just give him his list and he'll give it to you. But rather, he's saying that we know every prayer we give will be heard and answered. In that every prayer will be given an answer of yes, no, or not yet. Everything you ask for from God, he will say yes, no, or not yet. 
And every answer will be for our good because it will be according to his will, which is always good. Danny Akin says in his commentary, I put the quote on the screen because I want you to see it and I want to almost say it slowly. He said this, God wants to give you what you would want God to give you if you were wise enough to want it. God wants to give you what you would want God to give you if you were wise enough to want it. Keep your eyes fixed on God and then ask him the desires of your heart and trust him with the answer. John wants you to know that we can be confident in prayer. Let's keep going. Number three will come out of verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. All right, number three, John wants us to know that we have power to intercede. We have power to intercede. So right up front, these two verses are amongst the most difficult verses in the Bible to interpret. Okay, here's a rule of thumb with hard verses. Never make grand theological statements from difficult passages. Right? We want to approach this with humility. I said to the 9 a.m., I had Joe start this week for a reason. I needed an answer to this passage. Uh, he didn't have it for me, but we're working on it. All right? Um, don't make grand theological statements on difficult passages. But... In approaching it with humility, let's start with what is clear in those verses. What is clear is that John is affirming that believers have the power to and expect, expectation of interceding for one another in prayer. If you see a brother or sister commit a sin, he says, first, you should pray. Just as the second point flowed from the first, I think this third point flows from the second. Since we have confidence to pray, we should pray prayers of intercession for one another. I think that's clear. Now let's talk about what's unclear and the glaring question that everyone has. What is the sin that leads to death that John is referring to? He said, there is a sin that does not lead to death and we should pray for that. But then there's a sin that does lead to death, and we should not pray for that. What is the sin that leads to death? Quickly, let me give you the three, I'd say, most major interpretations across church history, and then I'll share which one I think it is. Number one, that it could be a specific deadly sin that leads to physical death. So an example in Scripture would be where someone sinned and then God struck them dead immediately because of that sin. Acts chapter 5, you had that married couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They grievously misled the church and they fell and died on the spot. That's number one. Number two, it could be the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, meaning the rejection of truth and a hardened heart that leads to spiritual death. So Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 said that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. Maybe John was referring to that in Jesus' teaching on that. 
And then number three, and this is the one that I tend to agree with, is the sin of the apostate. A false teacher who denies Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, makes a complete rejection of the gospel that not only exposes them as unbelievers, but also as teachers, they lead those they teach to spiritual death by teaching a false gospel, the sin that leads to death. I think this most aligns with the rest of John's letter, which repeatedly warned the church against false teachers. He says false teachers leads to false living. False teachers lead people to hell. This is why it's so dangerous. This is why we have to be so careful. This is why truth matters. And we know at the end of the first century, the first strands of Gnosticism was beginning to infect the church. The, the kind of major false gospel that would plague the church for its first 400 years, where leaders were coming out of the church, professing to be Christian teachers, and yet undermining truth, particularly around the person and work of Jesus Christ. So those who completely rejected the gospel by distorting it and then are leading others eternally astray is the sin that leads to death. That's what I would align with. But again, let me bring us back to what we know is clear about this and learn from it. John is specifying the need for intercessory prayer for fellow believers in your church who were caught in sin. We know all believers sin. That's all of us. But there's a difference between those who sin and those who are caught in a habitual practice of ongoing sin in a particular area. John says, first, pray for them. Intercede for them. Storm the throne of grace on their behalf that God will give them life, that God will over empower them to overcome that sin. So let's not let the confusing part of the verse obscure, I think, the clear exhortation for us here. That when it comes to fellow believers in your church who are caught in sin, first, don't gossip about them. Pray for them. I had to repent in my preparation of this sermon of how often I will think, or even worse, talk to someone else about another person's sin before actually praying for that person. Where we have that kind of, um, that, that prone to wander our own hearts, where we can, even in our darkest moments, almost enjoy when another person sins. Did you hear about that? Did you hear what they're doing? And it leads to gossip. It leads to slander. It leads to us kind of liking the juicy details of sin that somebody else is caught with. And in no point are we stopping and storming the throne of grace on their behalf, asking God to heal them from that, to free them from that, but rather we're just going to go and talk about them to someone else. I had to repent in the midst of preparing for this sermon. John Newton, in a letter he wrote to a friend, and on July 29th, 1761, said this, Take care that you do not catch an angry spirit yourself while you aim to suppress it in others. Be careful. You don't get caught in sin yourself when trying to address it in somebody else. Addressing sin in others is the church's job, but first, pray for them. 
intercede for them and take care that another person's sin does not lead you into the sin of gossip, but pray for them before you do anything else. John wants you to know in the church we have the power to intercede. All right, let's keep going. We've got two left. 1 John, verse 18 and 19. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Number four, John wants us to know that we are victorious over the evil one. This is the final time in the letter that John will invoke the word picture of believers being born of God. Born of God. He invoked that phrase 13 times throughout this letter. We know that anyone born of God does not keep on sinning. And by God, I think John here means God the Father, because then he will pivot and invoke Jesus Christ as the one in the middle of verse 18. So look down back at your Bible again. In the middle of verse 18, one, the O, is capitalized. And he's speaking of Christ. The one who was born of God keeps them safe. And the evil one cannot harm them. So here's what John is saying. Those who have repented of their sin, placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, have been born of God. And as a result of that salvation, they do not keep on sinning. Because Jesus, the eternal Son of God, keeps them from doing so, which again flows from the point before it. He says, intercede for them and pray for them because the children of God will overcome them by God giving them life. Our victory over sin is guaranteed. Church, the same grace that saved you will sustain you until the very end. Is there any more hopeful truth that we can dwell on than that? Let me say it how Paul says it in Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, sure, there's that word, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Praise God that we are free to admit I'm not a finished project. I got a lot of work to do. And my faith is not in my own self, but that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion. He saves. He sustains. He's going to see this through in your life. And yet, John is careful with his words here. He does not say that those who are born of God do not sin, never sin. Because if he did say that, he'd flatly contradict his own words from chapter 1, verse 8, when he wrote, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Here's what the truth we need to lay down. We will never be sinless on this side of glory. We will always battle against the flesh of our old sin nature. But those born of God will not keep on sinning. And there's the distinction. With the phrase, keep on sinning, John is referring to those who are engaged in an unrepentant, habitual sin where there's no feeling of remorse, no feeling that I'm struggling against this, just gladly involved in this sin area of my life, involved in a lifestyle where there's no struggle. It's the dominant pattern. John says, listen, it's not possible for Christ to save you from sin 
and for the Spirit to live within you without changing you. And so we will never be perfect, but by God's grace, we will make progress. It's an important phrase in your Christian life. Progress, not perfection. Progress, not perfection. And importantly, when the people born of God do sin, they draw near to Christ for restoration and forgiveness and are not driven away from Christ out of fear and punishment. All right, so listen to me. Practical question now for everybody. Um, when you sin, can anyone remember the last time you sinned? I mean, think, I know some of you I think really far back. But think about when you sin, here's my question. What's your first impulse towards God? What's your first thought? Is it to draw near or is it to drive away? Is he a loving father you can approach or is he a distant tyrant you need to hide from. Karen Swallow Pryor put out a tweet a couple weeks ago that hit me right between the eyes. And in the tweet, she wanted to distinguish between uh, religion and the gospel. Religion meaning kind of a man-made rules to earn favor with God versus the gospel of God giving it as a free gift. And so she put up this graphic on Twitter. I want to have it on the screen. Religion says... I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. The gospel says, I messed up. I need to call my dad. Our Father is faithful and just to forgive those who draw near to him. He will not shame you for it. He will not turn you away for it. When you sin, do you say, I messed up there. I need to go to him. I want to go to him. And not only does that grace work in us, but then by God's grace, it can work through us. And let me speak to primarily parents, maybe even primarily fathers. When your children mess up, isn't this what we want their response to be? If we're leading out in grace and the gospel, imperfectly, yes, but we want them to say, man, I messed up. I need to go call dad. Not that, man, my dad's going to kill me. Our Father is faithful and just to forgive. And in Christ, church, the evil one cannot harm you. Do you believe that? It doesn't mean you won't experience sorrow or suffering or trial, because we will and we certainly do. But he's saying nothing will be enough to overtake you. Commentator David Allen says about this verse that even while the enemy seeks to set fire to the lives of Christians, Jesus makes sure the wood is wet. You'll get the fire, but you won't get consumed. Church, we can know that we are victorious over the evil one. Hear me, not that we will be someday, but that today you are victorious over the evil one. That's present tense. John wants you to know this. Do you know it? All right, we got one left. Final two verses of this letter. Let's go, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, 
in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true and eternal life. Verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Number five, we can know that we are united with the one true God. John ends his letter the way he began it, spotlighting the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. From start to finish, John leaves his little children in the faith, meaning the church, with the truth that it's all about Jesus. It's not about a certain way of life. It's not about the way you talk. It's not about the way you look. It's not about the fancy programs we have at Grace Church. It's not about our morality and relative nature to people around us. It's first and foremost about Jesus. Unless we get prideful about our faith, be reminded, church, by John, when he says, it is he who has given you understanding. You didn't figure it out. We didn't stumble upon it or crack the code. We didn't get lucky. We didn't earn him, nor our salvation nor eternal life. He has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. To know him is not just to know about him, but to know him is to love him. To know him is to love him. To look upon his bleeding body on the cross, broken for you, and love him. To look upon his empty tomb, raised again to new life, and to love him. To see him ascending to heaven to the right hand of the Father, where he intercedes for you day and night until he returns to consummate all things. And you love him. And not only that, but we are in him, and he in us. And with that, we know he is true. That when we are all alone, take all the people out of the room, and it's just you, and there's no one else watching you, there's no one to impress, no one to put the front up against or for, it's in that moment you can say, I know he's true. He's the true God and eternal life. And it's that context in which now the final line, famous final line, final line of John's letter is not random. It's perfectly placed. Little children, Keep yourselves from idols. This is known as one of the most famous lines, and a lot of people will look at it at first glance, and Bible critics will say, maybe John was about to just keep writing. He was on his way to bring up another point, but then something happened, and he got disrupted or cut short and had to get this in the mail and send it out. But in classic John fashion, all through the letter, which we have seen, John loves a great contrast. He loves the positive-negative statement back-to-back to make a singular point. When he says, to know God is to be in the true and eternal God, positive, and then ending with the converse statement, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Idols meaning false gods. That's not a strange finish. It's a strong finish. Keep yourselves from idols. John saved the best exhortation for last, the most relevant command, not only to the churches he was writing to, but for churches for 2,000 years that would read it together. Because every church and every culture has its idols it's prone to wander to. Because an idol is anything that you love, trust, and obey more than God. 
Idols can be, and oftentimes are, good things that God has given us, but that we elevate over and above Him. Our jobs, our money, our families, our friends, our, our sports teams and hobbies. How about even our growth as a church can be an idol? Things that make for a great gift, but terrible gods. And so as we close out this series, let this be known, let this be true. Church, whatever gains your greatest affection proves to be your God. No matter what it's called, whatever gains your greatest affection, there you find your God. And the choice we are given, like every other person has been given in the history of the world, is this. Will we substitute something else for God? Or will we allow God to be the substitute for us in Christ? Draw near to him. Keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this entire letter, how it has convicted and assured us. How it cuts us open but then binds the wound how it reveals the ultimate truth that our hearts will never be at rest until we find ourselves in you. Father, give us the courage we need to not only believe that truth, but to live it out in the lives we lead, in the words we say, Lord. Let your kingdom be better off because of faithful brothers and sisters at Grace Church who have been given understanding. And I pray that you would work in us as you continue to work through us. And it would be all for your glory in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.